Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Alright, here we are, episode two of the first short, in which I am sharing my experience uh, shooting my first short film. Um, It's called The Guy. This episode will be getting into more of the pre-production and crowdfunding aspects of uh, my experience in which I successfully completed a $15,000 Kickstarter. Um, I had 163 backers, uh, many of which I did not know who they were, which is something that I guess I never thought would be possible and I'm sure wouldn't be possible uh, if it weren't for a lot of you out there. Um, So... Thanks for that. Here's my attempt to uh, pay some of that back, I guess, in the knowledge and experience that you helped me to uh, get or to learn. So here's a brief recap of what we covered last week. After three years of sitting on a script for a short film, constant rewrites, and a few false starts, I found an old classmate that agreed to give me a small amount of money to get pre-production on this project moving. My first moves were to hire a producer that could give me some guidance on who to hire and how much money we'd actually need to make my short film, find a DP, and do a location scout. So when I left off on the last episode, I briefly mentioned how I was basically forced to start over after our extremely helpful and worthwhile location scout. What I didn't mention was that the location scout was actually supposed to happen weeks before. Two days before our first prospective scout, both my producer and my co-director let me know that they wouldn't be able to make the trip after all. So that meant, you know, we didn't have a car, we didn't have a car booked, we didn't have a place to stay booked, we had nothing. Um, And this was something that we'd been supposedly planning for weeks. So we couldn't do anything else but cancel the trip. Now, since we were forced to cancel that scheduled trip, our shoot date had to be pushed back another two months. Um, While this ended up being a good thing because it would give me more than a month to focus solely on crowdfunding, it was the first in a series of warning signs that I may have made a mistake. That weekend that we were first to cancel uh, sort of sent me into a bout of (laughs) uh, anxiety-induced sickness. I went to a screening of THX 1138 with a friend, and about halfway through the screening, um, I felt violently ill, and I basically had to leave the screening and get on the subway and head back home, where some unfortunate things happened in my stomach. We'll just put it that way. So before I get back into what happened on my own story, um, let me get a bit into crowdfunding. The first thing I'd like to iterate is that I think everyone gets at least one free pass in creating a crowdfunding campaign. And I mean that in the terms of when hitting up all your friends and family for money to make an experimental short film, the chances of them helping out more than once are pretty slim, even if your film ends up being a success. Now, maybe this is just my own personal belief, but on top of that, it's probably just not going to feel great turning to them every time you want to make something. The point is, if you're going to make an attempt to get your project crowdfunded, make sure that the project is the one. Treat it like it's the only shot at making a project you'll ever get. So this means you're going to have to put a ton of thought and effort into how it's presented. You have to make it as aesthetically pleasing to your prospective backers as your lookbook, which we talked about in the last episode, was to your potential crew members. And even if you do end up making small crowdfunding campaigns again and again to your friends and family, This type of approach couldn't hurt, so the first decision that you're going to have to make is where are you going to crowdfund? There are a ton of great platforms for crowdfunding these days. I chose Kickstarter, and I'll discuss why, but it's important to acknowledge uh, Seed and Spark and Indiegogo as well, because they give you a couple different options. So for those of you that are totally worried about not hitting your goal, and you can't be persuaded that you will, these are good platforms to check out. Indiegogo has both fixed and flexible funding options, and the flexible funding option means you don't have to hit a goal to keep the cash you make. Seed and Spark only requires that 80% of the project be funded for you to be able to keep it. 
They also offer other community-oriented perks, like if you get a certain amount of people following your project on social media, then they'll throw in other in-kind services, like discounts to Ncrawl, which is a credit company. Um, not like a credit company that'll evaluate your score, but like a company that will design your credits for you. And discounts to Kitsput as well for potential gear, and reduced festival admission fees when you're ready to start submitting the damn thing. So these are for those of you who are interested in um, starting a crowdfunding campaign but are intimidated by the fact that you'll have to actually complete the goal. I chose the beastly one, however. Kickstarter. It is a scary and I'd come to find expensive option. I chose it because it provides something that the other two don't. And that's an incentive for other people, prospective backers, to pledge. And of course, I'm talking about the time limit. What seems like the scariest part is in fact the most useful, but you have to do a lot of work in order for it to happen. The advantage here is simple. If you've been engaging with your backers and your community and you've made $10,000 of your $15,000 goal, but you only have four days left, your backers aren't going to want to see you fail. Hopefully. <laughs> but in order for them to feel this way, you have to make them feel as if they're an indispensable part of the project, which guess what? They totally are. It's not going to be easy, but if you make it your life for a month, it'll work out. Running a Kickstarter is a full-time job, and you should do it at a point in pre-production where you can treat it as such. It's great if you have a period of time where you can focus only on crowdfunding and only on the Kickstarter. I don't think that that happened for me, but with this extended amount of time, it definitely allowed me to focus more on it than I would have been. So when you're planning your pre-production, definitely give yourself time to really think out and devote yourself to this crowdfunding campaign. The next step is going to be locking down your final budget. So you need to find out how much you're asking for. Now, I'm personally of the belief that you should go big or go home. But this goes hand in hand with my earlier theory that you're probably only going to get one shot at Kickstarter for a short film. So you might as well go for it. Another pretty hard rule is that your film is always going to cost more than what you'd expect. My producer and I were going back and forth between ten dollars and $15,000, and I learned um, recently from an article uh, that I wrote with one of the founders of Short of the Week that a typical, your average short film will cost $15,000. Again, it doesn't have to cost this much, but that's just the number. I went for fifteen. Uh, after a long time of being like, oh, I should go for 10. I'm really scared of this whole thing. <laughs> I should probably uh, go for the lower number. But I think like I got some courage in the last couple days before we were going to launch. And I was like, we're going to need this money. So we might as well ask for it. If I was short on the goal and it ended up getting to a point where we had, you know, a couple thousand dollars left, then I just throw in some of the money that I've been saving from having a job. Uh, because there's really, when you get to this point, there's really nothing that you'd rather spend your money on or you'd rather save your money on. You just have to be fully devoted to the project. So now to talk a bit about perks. Uh, the perk levels I chose were $10, $30, $50, $75, $125, $200, $500, $1,000, $2,500, and $5,000. That's a lot. And uh, it was probably a little bit excessive. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Especially considering the fact that my $5,000 reward was a limited reward that one person could get. And that was a bag full of my hair. Uh which was just going to be like a plastic bag full of my hair. Nobody went for it. Um, but, you know, in fairness, it's probably the last hair I'll ever have. So it could be worth something someday. Anyways, it was a Hail Mary, and no one went for it. The important thing is that you cater your perk levels to the audience you think you'll be able to attract. Keep in the lower levels for your artistic friends who still work at the bar or restaurant, and keep the high ones there too uh, for whoever you think might want to be like a producer on the film, essentially. I had strangers pledge $1,000, which only happened because I treated this as a legit project and not just some throwaway thing made by a first-time filmmaker. Make sure your perks are also things that people actually want. 
I gave out stickers because, you know, it's cool to, like, stick those things on whatever you got. Um, I give out mugs, which are always awesome. Great gift idea, I think, in general. I love a mug. Access to the script and screener when it comes out, which is, you know, pretty much a standard perk across all crowdfunding campaigns. And credits. Now, credits are by far the most valuable asset of any crowdfunding perk. You should let your prospective producing backers know that they're getting a deal now on taking a chance on you in the early stages of your career. And it could potentially be a relationship that blossoms into something more fruitful later on. Confidence is huge. So who are your targets going to be? That's another very important thing to identify before you start your crowdfunding campaign. What I did was extremely helpful, and that was to break my targets up into three separate lists. Friends, family, and industry. I wrote out a personal email announcing the campaign and my intent to the family group and the industry group with different language um, according to, you know, one is a professional group of people that I'd met throughout my career, my very brief career, um, and the other are family and family friends who uh, I asked my parents to put together a list of people that would potentially be uh, interested in backing the campaign. For my friends, I actually sent out individual messages on Facebook um, announcing what I'd be doing. And for the industry, I racked my brain for every possible connection I've ever worked with, met, or had as a former teacher at university or mentor. Um, this is an incredibly important list. And it's not just for money, but it's because of the potential connections that these people could give you. Um, I made the majority of the money, I'd say, for my campaign, not from my bosses or um, you know, former executives of companies that I used to work for, but from the connections of bosses that I'd once had who knew me and believed in me enough to put me in touch with these prospective backers. They introduced me to retired lawyers, businessmen, etc., uh, people who are looking to get into the entertainment game because it's an attractive thing for people to get into. Lastly, be sure and ask people who can't donate to at least spread the word about the Kickstarter as much as they can through social media, word of mouth, or otherwise. So what should you actually have on your Kickstarter page? First off, let's talk about video. Please do something to make your video stand out. Take an hour to think how you can make your video more than simply just a couple of talking heads. Your biggest objective with the video is to make sure people sit through and are engaged by the whole thing. That gets harder as the video grows longer, so, for that reason, I really have to suggest that the video be no more than two and a half minutes long. And you should only cover the basics, i.e. what the story is about, who you are, and what you need, very briefly. The point of your video should be to get people to read the rest of the information about your film directly below it, and not actually to give them all of the information in the video. Here's the audio from my own Kickstarter video to hear the information I gave. Hello. My name is John Fusco, and come October, I'll be shooting a short film I've written entitled The Guy. You may know me as a former classmate, a friend, a family member, or perhaps even for my writing and podcast work on the website No Film School. You may also not know me at all, and to that I say, hey, that's just fine. The Guy is about a guy. His name is Tony. I suppose I could have called the film Tony, but then certain things could get easily confused. Every night, Tony, with a Y, has the same monotonous dream. It is a foggy morning, there is an open bay. He rows out into the middle of the water, he stops, there is a thump. Then, he wakes up. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, well that's all well and good, John Fusco, but why do you think you can make a film? Well, there are a number of reasons. I may not have gone to film school, but every day I learn about film. That's my day job. As one of No Film School's three full-time employees, I've produced, edited, and recorded over 130 podcasts in the past year. At festivals like South by Southwest, Sundance, and the Toronto International Film Festival, I've led multiple roundtables about the art of making short films. In June, I was invited to be a narrative shorts judge for the Brooklyn Film Festival. I can now confidently say, I know what makes a successful short. I'm not gonna lie to you, it's gonna take a huge effort to get this film made. We're shooting on location on the Chesapeake Bay in Delaware with a cast and crew of close to 15 people. A healthy portion of the budget will be going towards production design. The script features two mirroring worlds and I want them to be as rich and detailed as possible. You'll see certain props in one world that will change drastically in the next. For example, we'll turn a fish into a pig, but we'll need the money to afford both of those animals first. 
And of course, there's the gear. We're asking for $15,000 to fulfill these needs. We'll need all of your help to get this short film funded, as we've opted for the all or nothing campaign on Kickstarter, which means if we don't make our entire goal, we'll lose everything we've raised so far. We've got some great rewards for compensation for your contributions, including early access to the script, free tickets to the premiere screening with an open bar, this poster behind me, signed by the entire cast and crew, and even the opportunity to be credited as a producer yourself. Be sure and check out a full description of the plot, in addition to how the film will look and feel in the text below. And hey, thanks for listening. Now, the trick with my video was that I thought of a hook to keep people engaged. I shot the video in my basement on a DSLR with a couple of friends, and my brother stood behind me in a full tuxedo with a stocking on his head holding an electric shaver. Between each cut, he'd shave a little bit more of my head, but you'd never see it happen on camera. So by the end of the video, I was bald. That's all it took. I just thought of something that would make people want to stick around and see what happens in the end. The video somehow now has over 14,500 views on Vimeo. Um, I'll link to it again in the post that goes out with this podcast so you can see for yourself uh, what I did. In terms of the information on the page itself, it should be very much like the lookbook you use with your crew. You should look at a whole bunch of different Kickstarter campaigns and how they lay out their information, especially what visuals they use, so you can try and emulate what you like for yourself. There's definitely no harm in straight-up stealing ideas from other successful campaigns that you think look great. Go ahead and use mine if you want to. I don't care. I'd be happy to help. I mean, I think we're really all in this together. We all want to be seeing more people put stuff out, and we're all... There's no one that wants a Kickstarter campaign to fail. There's no artistic property here. What I did was present the information in sections with headers that were hand-drawn, and then scanned in to promote the tone of the film through the aesthetic of the layout on the page. The first section was a brief summary, which actually incorporated screenshots of the script so that people could see sort of the style that I was going for. Next, I highlighted a few of my narrative and visual strategies in a section labeled Mirrored Worlds. Then I gave a brief bio of myself and how the project came to be. Guess what? I had a look and feel section, which I literally lifted directly from my lookbook, so all that work was done. Of course, you'll need a section dedicated to the cast and crew you have attached to the project, and one of the most important sections is your budget breakdown. This is the section to show why it's so important that the prospective backers give as much to your project as they can. For that, I made a pie graph chart of exactly how we would allocate out each backer's money. The sections were cast and crew at 37%, food travel and accommodations at 26%, camera lighting and sound at 17%, art department and production design at 11%, contingency at 5 and pre-production fees at 4 This shows that you have planned out how you're going to spend your budget um, and that you're not just blindly asking for money. I know this is a ton of information, but the last piece of the puzzle I want to talk about is how important it is to keep in touch with your prospective backers throughout the entirety of the campaign. If you're not a social media person, then you better become one for a month or so. If you were to look at the ebb and flow of the backer activity in the life of your campaign, you should expect a heavy amount of donations at the beginning and at the end, but those end donations will only come to you if you keep some sort of momentum going in the middle. The only way to build that momentum is by constantly reminding people that your campaign exists. Monitor the amount of money that's coming in, and whenever there's a lull, post on your social media pages to people to remind them. And sure, you may be considered annoying, and you may be scared of asking for money at first, but those fears will quickly fade away as you realize you need to do everything you can to get the job done. It's just a part of the job. The language you use in these reminders and in communicating with backers is also extremely important. It's entirely necessary that you frame the project as, quote, our project and not, quote, my project. As soon as a backer gives you money, they are a part of the team. And for many prospective backers, that's the most attractive idea. So while I was most leftly to my own devices in creating the Kickstarter, the night of its launch, an extremely significant event took place. I went out and drank beer with some friends. It was that night that would perhaps lead to the most important discovery I had during the entirety of this production. Your friends can be better producers than that person who has a more impressive resume. I had come to the decision that it was time for me to find some people that I trust to help me make this thing since the producer that I had hired was proving to be a detriment to the project. 
So I asked my friends Justin Fisher and Casey Sinsick to divide her work between them. They agreed. And because they are my good friends who just wanted to see me succeed, they said they'd do it for free. I can confidently say that this film would not be made if they had not been there to pick up the slack. And now I'd like to welcome to the program those guys. So guys, if you could introduce... <laughs> I, I'm one of those guys. So guys, if hey. you could introduce yourselves to the audience so they can recognize your voices, just say your name and uh, give us a little bit of information about yourself. Uh, I'm Casey Sinsick. I am uh, a producer on The Guy. Uh, I work as a VFX producer for a uh, commercial production company, and I've been producing short films for a little while. Uh, I'm Justin Fisher. Um, I'm a New York-based camera operator, and uh, this is the first thing I produced, but uh, I think I did a pretty good job. I think you did also. I did. I think you guys both did a really good job. So now, I know that neither of you really had an official title, but if you had to give yourself a distinction as to what type of producer you were on the project, what would it be? What would you call yourself? Uh, King, emperor. <laughs> um, uh, I, would, I would consider uh, both of us as line producers, um, yeah. which is sort of the encompassing term to uh, cover the person who is dealing with a lot of the onset stuff. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. I also like to think of myself as executive producer. You're not. <laughs> so <laughs> do you, do you rem- I, clearly you might have some trouble with this, but do you remember what your main jobs were on the project? Because like, I, I, as much as you say you were line producers, there's a lot that you did um, before we got on set that I think uh, should be known. Mainly managing budget. Yeah. I think it was a big thing, and you came to us with a lot of issues with budget, and I think we worked together to figure out the best solution. So I think um, when you're producing a short film, uh, there's a little bit of kind of covering all aspects of production. Uh, there's not as much of a delineation. So we were helping uh, find locations. We were helping you oversee um, some of the casting. We were doing a lot of finding the crew, figuring out how the budget was going to be allocated through this, uh, you know, ended up being a five-day shoot? Five-day shoot. Uh, was it five days? Was it? I think it was four and four? a half. Yeah. Yeah. Four and a half-day shoot. Yeah. So I think that, like, Casey, you were probably doing more of that budgeting stuff and overseeing uh, the pre-production stuff. And Justin, I, I would say you were more of, like, the UPM and, like, the, the line producer. Um, U, UPM is, like, unit production manager. Uh, but Casey, some of the stuff that you brought to me during pre-production, we talked a lot about, you know, how we were going to allocate this budget. Um, is there any sort of like general rule, would you say for, um, short filmmakers where the majority of their budget should be going? Yeah. So it's different for every type of short film. Uh, this one had particular challenges because we were shooting, uh, away. We were shooting on or in Chesapeake Bay which uh, meant getting our crew down there or finding local crew, which it seemed to us more reasonable to find crew up here in New York that we uh, knew. But we, um, I was looking to figure out a way to make sure everybody was getting paid at least something that they could be happy with um, and also being fed well, uh, sleeping well, the locations. Um, so, you know, it's always a challenge trying to figure out where the money is going. Yeah. And we even talked about like who, what kind of crew members we would actually like need to bring on, you know, like who could we afford to bring on? What positions could we afford to bring on? Um, where could we cut, you know, some money? So could you talk about either of you, like what are some of the places where you can look to sort of bend the budget a little bit? Like what are things that you don't necessarily need on a short film that you see used on short films a lot? There are a couple of places we thought maybe we could use it more of a favor. So cut some of the payment that you're paying this person for. Um, I know at one point we were going to do an underwater housing for a camera, and we had discussed that like we didn't really think it was necessary for how expensive it was. And I, I really always think like you're never really going to have enough money ever. Like no matter how big your project is, you don't ever really have enough money. So it's important to just 
think what does your story just need in general to be told in the bare minimum and breaking everything down to that because in the end it doesn't matter how much money you have that's the most important thing is that you have a strong story yeah absolutely we we had a healthy budget for this uh, short film because of your fundraising ahead of time um, but you know there's still compromises to me to be made we ended up not getting um, underwater housing but we did still have anamorphic lenses for instance and I think that was a good trade-off because it makes the film look beautiful uh, with our talented DP working on it. Well, also, I remember when we were looking at Airbnbs, that was like finding the right Airbnb that could house all of us that also wasn't like half of our budget was insane. Yeah, that's the the challenge with an away shoot is uh, a lot of the budget went to uh, travel expenses. Um, With short films, a lot of the budget always goes to uh, food, uh, trucking, um, even if you can get equipment rental, you're spending a lot, especially on away shoots with like housing for crew and making sure everybody is eating like a full meal and not just a pizza every night. Yeah, I mean, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, when we were looking at Airbnb four houses, uh, our, our final group turned out to be 19 crew members and seven cast members, uh, which meant we had to rent about three houses for, I think it was five days, uh, or five nights in addition to the house we were renting to shoot at. Uh, so you can see how the expenses of shooting on location really do add up. Yeah. And there was a lot of logistical challenges with that also, because where we happened to be shooting in Chesapeake Bay, didn't have that many options on Airbnb, and a lot of them were further out than we would have liked. Yeah, we didn't f- exactly find four houses that were like close to our ro- locations uh, in our price range. So we had to actually like split up the sleeping arrangements according to who should be on set first, right? Yeah. So obviously that meant that the crew should be at the closer houses, uh, and the production designer and DP ended up actually sleeping at the location, but our cast was like 40 minutes away, right? Yeah. Another challenge that we faced because we had those three houses was that we needed like three, at least three cars, um, because we weren't going to like drive 40 minutes to this other place to pick up the cast members and then drive back with them. We didn't have that kind of time. Uh, you guys needed to be doing other things to prep uh, while the cast was on their way down from their 40-minute location, like, you know, go out and get breakfast, for example. Uh, that, again, is something that is sort of particular to this this specific shoot, but um, that's one thing we would have done differently is had more uh, paid for a driving PA on set to be available to be doing that stuff so that it wasn't landing on us for that. But that was a a trade-off that we made with the budget that we had. Yeah. I might regret this question later, (laughs) but, you know, with the budget that we had um, being so small, why did you guys, like, agree to come onto this project and do it for free? Um, Mainly just because I know you. Uh, I've known you since college, and I always thought you were talented. I believe in you. So I've seen your your journey from, like, trying and failing to trying and like failing and try like finally being in a place where you I was like oh he's succeeding and to be a part of it I was I was not going to miss it so I jumped on board any way I could um I mean I loved the script I was there at the like inception of this ridiculous idea yeah your uh, voice was on I shared a clip of the inception of the idea and the, the idea in the last episode and you can hear your voice on that yeah I don't really remember um Probably 70% of it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was great, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have missed it. For me, uh, I wasn't as close friends with you before this production, actually, but I really liked the script, and I think I'm at a point where when I'm choosing short films to help produce, it matters to me how the story is because, you know, there's a lot of subpar or mediocre work. So, like, what opportunities do you look for in short films to jump in uh, uh, and produce on? Well, I think something that, first off, is feasible for the budget that they have. Um, I think a lot of people who are first-time directors don't really realize how much money goes into making a short film and so have sequences that really can't be done for the budget that they have. Uh, But also, it's 
it's reading a script that has a story that interests me that I think is well told that I could see um, getting into film festivals possibly. And even just being completed. I mean, the amount of projects yeah. I think I've yeah, worked yeah. on where they never got completed and and I feel like that happens all the time, especially with first-time filmmakers, is you they just it fizzles out because there's not enough money, the project doesn't come out the way that they thought, and there's so many expectation, and then they always just fall short. That's interesting because... You know, that's something that maybe our listeners can take away with if they're trying to find prospective crew members is like to show this initial dedication that like you have this vision and you're not going to stop until it's completed. Yeah. Um, I think that's like really important. Yeah. As much as I hate doing Kickstarter campaigns or, or Indiegogo, sometimes getting other backers instead of putting in your own money is a good way to commit you to a project. Totally. And make sure that you follow through on it. So Casey, what do you do when you create a budget for a short film? Because you were largely the guy who was like deciding where this money should go. Like, do you have uh, certain spreadsheets or tools that you use? Yeah. So uh, for this particular one, I was using a a budgeting tool called, um, I believe, Showbiz Budget, or uh, no, I think it was Movie Magic Budgeting. Um, It's a tool that lets you kind of break out uh, crew members and locations and equipment and all that and specify line items for each one. And and part of it is my experience from producing other short films that I sort of know um, how much you should be aiming to pay people, how much you can expect to be spending on lenses and cameras. But a lot of that is stuff that you can pick up by calling a a rental house and seeing how much a rental for a weekend or however long you need it would be for, say, you know, a RED camera and a, like, lens kit, Um, knowing that, uh, for instance, budgeting um, crew meals, I usually, there's a formula for, like, okay, you assume $12 per person per day for lunches, which usually, when you combine it all, encompasses a a big... um, uh, catered meal, basically, uh, things like that. And also something in, important is with gear, always try to negotiate because you, oh, you yeah. will be surprised by how much everyone is kind of there to help you. Not all the time, of course, but, I mean, yeah, I remember when I was talking to the DP and we needed a hazer, and I was on the phone and, like, uh, and I came back to him and I was like, all right, this is the amount, and he was like, did you negotiate? And I was like, well, like, yeah. And he was like, negotiate. And I remember we got like, uh, it was like $100 cheaper for the whole thing. And they were, immediately they were like, oh, yeah, of course. So it, it is important to just. You can reach out to these people and say, I'm shooting a short film. What can you do to help me in you know a nicer way? And, yeah. And they'll usually either give you a discount. They might be able to throw in some stuff for free. They might be able to give you an extra day if you need it. Yeah, I mean, I find that it's true with like every aspect of pre-production almost, you know, when we were looking for uh, housing, for example, like on Airbnb and Verbo, I mentioned to the hosts that we were like shooting a uh, short film in the area and like their price was a little bit out of our budget range. Is there anything that they could do to bring it down for us? And they did like pretty much every one of the houses that we asked was able to like make that uh, happen for us. And it's just something that you have to ask, you know, like, again, you have to ask for so many favors from everybody to make sure that you can pull this off. Yeah. Weirdly, like filmmaking is just kind of a lot of begging (laughs) and and, like producing is a lot of begging. It's like, it's like having a dream and just begging people to believe in it. And surprisingly, most of the time people do. So, Let's run through some of the key things that we did need to lock down before we moved into production. I have like a few of them here, uh, and maybe you can shed some insight as as to how we did this. Uh, The first would be to coordinate with SAG because we did have SAG actors. How how was that process? Yeah, that was something that I did. Um, They they try to make it easy for you. Um, And so you reach out to SAG, and there's an online form for short films under a certain budget, which we were under that budget. I think it's like 50000 or something like that. I could be wrong. Um, But what it basically is, is you specify what the film is, you send them a script, you note if there's going to be any special effects or anything, and that is something that you would have to clear with them so that you're not putting your SAG actors into uh, mortal peril. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then you have to like keep track of their hours and stuff, right? Yeah. So they send you these documents. Um, yeah, so that that is um, something that is a little bit of a pain in the ass, but it's necessary. Um, you have to be keeping track every day of your artist's hours, um, including how long they travel to and from set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you compile all these documents and you send it to them after you've gotten signed off. Um, you send it to them after the proje- uh, project and they uh, clear you, basically. And then we talked about how we needed to find housing on Airbnb and Verbo. Uh, we needed to rent a van and a truck. Uh, Justin, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Because I think that was your um, Yeah, duty. I mean, we shopped around, but CC Rentals is pretty much always like the cheapest bet. I mean, the cars are never in great shape, but the good thing is you don't really have to return them in great shape. Sorry, CC Rentals. <laughs> but like, and I mean, it is, it's like, it was stupid cheap. We rented a cube truck and a 12 pass, right? Yes. Thank God Michelle had her own car, too. Right. And then our lead actor also had a car, and she was the one who ended up driving the actors to and from set, and also she drove down to Maryland. So, yeah, we had a giant, like, crew going down there. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, CC Rentals, it's pretty simple. I mean, they have a great—it's like you just fill out a form, pretty much, and they okay you. It's cheap. Easy. And then so after we had the cars, we gathered all the props, um, everything that went in the cube truck was like lighting, props, uh, gear from Ari, uh, production design stuff. Yeah, all in like one day. It was a while. Yeah, all in one day, all like the day before. Um, And then we (laughs) picked up the equipment from Ari the day before, and during that pickup, uh, our two ACs went with our DP, and actually, like, while they were picking up the equipment, our ACs called us and told us that they wouldn't be able to do the project. <laughs> so this was, like, the day before we were going down. Luckily, they found two people that, like, could replace them, but that was scary. Um, yeah, that's another um, thing that you have to expect with short films is that if you can't be paying someone their full day rate, right. you always have to expect that they'll get something better and, and they'll they might drop, drop out. Yeah, they might drop out. They have no sort of like, there's no contracts, there's no commitment. So it's uh, it's a lot of trust, basically. Um, so we had all this stuff and some of the things that we had that weren't necessarily like things that we had to transport, but uh, were things that like the whole crew could have access to. Uh, we made a folder online of a lot of like the production material that we'd need um, that anyone could get to, uh, such as like um, the scripts with like script lining on it. I w- uploaded scans that I took of my own personal script. Uh, we had uh, the shot list up there available. Um, I think we had... We built in a crew list that had... It's always helpful to have all of your contact information in one place, including whether anyone has food allergies, uh, phone numbers, email addresses. Uh, uh, for us, we also specified in that same document what housing they would be landing in, right. uh, how they were getting down, because there was a lot of coordination. It's like it's like a field trip. It's like planning a field trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so also our AD drew up, uh, a plan for each day, which of course is the shooting schedule, um, which is like hugely important. And that's something that we had been sort of passing back and forth for a couple weeks to try and make sure we had the most efficient use of our time possible. Um, as a general rule, I'd say that the most important thing for the schedule, uh, for our schedule at least was that we got the exterior shots out of the way first. Um, because for us that meant waking up at five in the morning and getting out onto the bay so we could shoot before the sun came up. And, uh, one of the things you have, you know, you have to take into consideration where the sun is going to be at every point of your shooting schedule. If the sun got up to a certain point while we were on the water, you could see that happen on camera. Like it would be much brighter as the sun started to glare off of the, uh, off of the water surface. So we were hoping for foggy days. We didn't really get foggy days. It was the middle of November, but it was still like 80 degrees. Um, So we just had to get out there really early. Yeah. Global warming. So while we were out there shooting the exteriors, this also gave time to the production design team to finish setting up the interior shots. Because we had such an intense production design uh, featuring two separate worlds, it made our day actually a little bit easier in that sense in terms of knowing what we were going to shoot because we'd do all the shots for the first world 
Then once we were done with all that stuff, we would change over and do all the shots for the second world. Um, so like the first world had nautical props, for example, and the second world was cowboy props. Uh, you'll see eventually, hopefully. Uh, we shot all the house stuff first over the weekend. Uh, we got down there on a Friday, and then we moved to the diner on Monday so we could leave the owners of the diner uh the restaurant for the weekend to get the re- the weekend rush, which uh, I say loosely <laughs> because it was in the middle of nowhere. So we left on a Friday and we drove six hours down to Maryland with the expectation to set up and get going right away. Um, it was going to be a half day. Our first problem came up as soon as we got down there, though. Uh, one of the cars with the production designer got there much later than everyone else because she ended up having to go with the DP to pick up a piece of equipment that was missing uh, from the gear that Ari gave us. Uh, they were in New Jersey, so they actually had to drive to New Jersey before they made their way back down to Maryland. They had to deal with uh, Ari and picking up uh, this, I think it was just like a, a few filters that they were missing. So there's a lesson. Always check everything before you leave the rental house when you're picking it up the first time. Yeah, I think it was diopters is what we... Yeah. And so because of that, production had to be pushed back uh, on an already tight schedule, and everyone ended up getting pretty stressed out from the beginning, I'd say. Which is normal, I, I guess, but I like... I wasn't stressed out one bit. <laughs> I was, I was. hanging out. <laughs> um, and then when the production designer finally got to set... Uh, she was kind of just like swarmed by the rest of the crew and told to start work immediately, like as soon as she got out of the car. Uh, she hadn't had lunch at this point. Um, she didn't have time to just like gather her breath. And because of that, she immediately started the production, like very stressed out, agitated, and even got a little bit sick because of it. And, you know, none of that was her fault. Uh, it was my fault. Uh, later that night, as we were setting up the final shot of the day, my production designer actually took me aside and told me maybe the most important lesson I learned the entire time I was down there. She said something along the lines of, in addition to everything else, perhaps your biggest job as director is to make sure that everyone in your cast and crew is comfortable and being treated well. So while you're doing everything else, um, really your focus needs to be on what the vibe of the entire set is and how each individual person is feeling. Well, I think that's also something that we should be yeah, dealing with also. I w- yeah, I would say even more than you, it's probably our job. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that is like our out. main job, actually. <laughs> so you didn't fail. I believe we failed. <laughs> you, I think you were busy trying to make a movie. I, th- I say yes and no. I think like you guys uh, are beholden to like make sure they're comfortable um, maybe physically more than mentally. I think like... In terms of mental feeling, it's probably my job. Um, but I don't know. Do you do you not agree with that? I, and I was I'd say the producer's job is to make sure everyone is is comfortable and happy because we are normally the person who would get taken aside and, and they'd be told that. I mean, I remember the the grips actually came up to me on like one of the last days, and they were like, "Look, the, like we're behind schedule." And I know you want to take like an like give everyone a break, but like I think we should. And they even said like I think we should just work through lunch, like eat lunch and work through it. And I was like, All right. I mean, that's awesome. Like and that that just goes to show like how great my crew was. Um, but also, but it's like, the, like we are the, the like we you should are never the person who that, should. Yeah. No, of course, but like we are normally the people who'd get taken aside and be told, right? Hey, we need this, or hey, we should be getting and this. And then you tell me. So I could get an understanding of what everyone's yeah. feeling. <laughs> yes, or we just do it so that you can concentrate. Right. One or the other, depending on the situation. It really does depend on the situation. Yeah, and I guess it you depends know? on the director too. Like, um, I'm obsessive, so like I would want to know that stuff. I think. Yeah, but so I mean, that's also the thing is it really depends because some directors like can't be bothered with that because they're focus like they just need to focus on whatever they're working on, and to that. Is a distraction to them. I think it's you've it, got to just know. I think know your crew and know who you're yeah. working with. As a producer, it's like you should know your director pretty well since you're going to be working with them extremely closely. It's to a certain extent also on a, a short film. The director has to act as a producer half the time, also hmm. just because you're working with a very small crew and a very small budget, and so you're sort of managing more than just the 
creative aspect, but right. Like what I, I think what I was gonna next say is that you know as a director, um, especially it's doubly true um, with a low budget shoot where people are earning like half of what they deserve or nothing. Uh, in your guys' case, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> You'll get us back one day. Yeah, one day I'll get you back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole point. Uh, as a director, you're the leader, and it's your responsibility to sort of keep everyone at least excited about the project and happy to be there. Maybe that's more of the producer's job is the happiness. But if something goes wrong, your reaction as the director could end up dictating the mood of the entire set. Absolutely. So, like, the biggest challenge I faced um, happened the morning after we wrapped at our house location and we were ready to move to the diner. My DP, Adam, who was on the show last time, pulled me aside as we were about to get in the van and I could like immediately tell that something was wrong. He seemed very upset, not at all what the vibe was with the rest of the crew. We were all like really excited to get to this next location, this weird ass diner who were going to be feeding us like food directly from the sea. (laughs) Um, And it was good to, you know, rap and like move to a new location for the first time. That was a very gratifying feeling. But Adam was upset. And um, he pulled me aside, and we we took a, a little walk. And he told me that there was an error in DIT oh, right. from the night before, yeah. and that we had lost an entire scene. Um, I think in in that moment, my heart kind of stopped like a little bit, um, because I th- I think that things were going so well, or, or or it felt like things were going so well that to hear that was just like very. Of course, it was disappointing, but. I could have done a few things in that moment. I could have freaked out and like lashed out at him and been like, like, you know, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You lost that scene. <laughs> what the fuck, man? Are we allowed this, to curse on here? This movie's over. Yeah, we're allowed to curse. It's PG-13. Oh, thank fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or I could have kept him happy so that like he would continue to do the great work that he'd been doing in the previous couple of days. Losing that scene was tough, but it wasn't as important as ensuring that the next couple of days went smoothly. Um, and I already owed Adam so much already. Uh, the fact that he was wearing so many different hats that he shouldn't have been wearing, uh, there was no way I could actually be mad at him, basically. Uh, we would make it work, and we didn't have the time to worry about it, nor did we have the energy to worry about and, it. And the truth is, if we had probably had the ACs we had, we had originally had, they would have been doing the DIT. Right. I mean, it's normally not the DP's job to do that. Exactly. And like, it's like one of those things that... where as terrible as it is, it's like when you're wearing that many hats, something's probably going to slip. Yeah. It's just like, and I think that's exactly like the right thing to do is like you, to get mad at him would only make things worse later on. It would have been terrible. That's the most important relationship you're going to have on set is the director and the DP. And if I was harboring any like sort of ill feelings for him or if he felt that I was harboring any sort of ill will for like a mistake that he made, like the whole th- next three days of production would have probably been terrible well, for it's, everybody. It's also I've found that um, basically every set that you're going to be on is going to have some sort of technical issue. Right. And it's not always that. It's not always something as dramatic as that. Um, but there's always going to be some issue with the camera or a light that blows or like this, then the other. And, uh, you know, production is sort of finding ways to roll with the punches. Yeah. So like, even if it is your first project, you have to be confident with your vision and at least keep up the appearance that you're not panicking every minute, (laughs) that something like that could happen. And you have to be happy with the way that the project is going. And perhaps most importantly, you need to make decisions swiftly and use your limited time each day, like with the maximum possible efficiency. Um, So guys, can you just briefly walk us through a day on set from your perspective? Like what were your main duties? Oh God. So, well, one, we would always figure out the night before who was going to pick up breakfast while someone picks up crew while then someone else grabs the rest of the crew. So that was sort of what I mentioned earlier. One of the things that we would have done differently is had a driving peon set because we ended up having to do a lot of those duties, um, making sure that we were coordinating um, the meals and making sure that especially the first meal was 
ordered ahead of time, was ready to go so that we could just swing by, pick it up, and have it ready for everybody when they landed on set. If there was anything missing, batteries, all, all that stuff had to be picked up randomly. They were in the water at one point, so we had to like, run and go grab socks for them because everything was just wet. Um, <laughs> um, and then from there, so the crew lands on set, we make sure everybody is fed and happy and ready to go and there isn't anything that is needed. And then through the day, it's a matter of checking in with John and checking in with um, Cecilia, the uh, the AD, who has more of a handle of, you know, the schedule and making and you know making sure that everything is on track. And then we are there to be supporting them, to be picking up things that they need, to be running errands, to make sure that lunch is ready, to uh, make sure that we're not going over budget at the same time. Yeah. So that that's getting back to the budget. That's something that I try to account for when I'm building in a budget for a set is that you always have to have a contingency for a lot of these little things that pop up that you can't predict, like yeah. socks. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, what is it, like 10, 15? You always keep like a percentage. Of, it, was, it was 5%. 5%. For us, yeah. So yeah, but, always yeah, keep. We had a bigger budget. Yeah, so. always keep some, because something will go wrong. Some money will have to be spent somewhere. And it's you're not going to want to do it, but you got to do it, and you should just always have the money prepared because it yeah. Will the nice thing about that contingency is you don't have to turn around on set and say, "Well, do we have enough money for that? Do we have enough money for socks?" Yeah, I don't it's like, know. oh, we didn't put that in the budget. It's like there's always money for socks. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, um, we make sure everyone's fed. We're also working on the next day's plan. Um, and a lot of this is stuff that was figured out in pre-production, but of course, once you're on set, things change. So for us, because this was an away shoot with a bunch of different houses and things like that, it was a matter of um, making sure we had a plan for how everyone was getting back once we wrapped, making sure that we were wrapping on time and that people were going to be able to get their you know, their full night's sleep. On this set, it was like 10-hour turnarounds. It wasn't 12 hours just because of travel times, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And then figuring out everything for the next day, yeah. basically. And also, I mean, I, I was uh, helping Grip move stuff in the truck, move stuff out. We were all helping unload. I mean, on a short film, you kind of end up doing you end up more doing than everything. just... Yeah. Yeah, I, I ended up at the last day doing DIT so that mm-hmm. they could focus on shooting. So I, like, run back to that the house because the like the restaurant we were working at was kind of like a crazy place and I didn't trust any of it so we had my la- like the laptop and all the DIT stuff at the house so I'd drive to the house load a card start dropping it and then come back and help out and then run back to the house uh, all while trying to figure out how we were going to leave that day yeah so. There was one point where they had me driving to try and find a place that had live worms. Yeah. Because we needed live worms. So I found the bait shop like a half hour away. Yeah. So basically just be ready to do anything at all times. Yeah. That's uh, ultimately what it comes down to on a short film set is that it's different for, you know, larger budget productions where there's more delineation between crew members. But for a short film, especially producing a short film, you just have to be ready to roll with the punches. So I think we've talked a lot about like producing um, and even like directing and producing, but I think before um, we close out, there are a few things that I'd like to say about directing um, as a whole and like sort of how you should be working with your crew and your actors. Um, I think that like you hire your crew for a reason. You hire them because they're all experts at what they're doing. Um, so you want to be taking into account everything that they say on set. You're going to be bombarded <laughs> with suggestions and opinions, um, and most of them are going to be good, hopefully. And you want to take those. You want to like have an open ear, and you want to be listening to what your collaborators are suggesting that you do. But you really want to be keeping your vision in check. So if there is something that you don't agree with um, that your DP or your production designer is suggesting, then just say no. If it's something that you think could actually end up benefiting or enhancing the scene, uh, then say yes. And of course, this maybe like this sounds like obvious advice, but when you're actually down there in the moment, it's a lot harder. Um, so you really have to just remember your initial vision uh, for your project and keep that in mind the entire time and see if people's suggestions enhance that 
or negate it. Um, I would say that for working with actors, uh, it comes a bit easier for me because I went to acting school, uh, as did Justin, um, and I'd worked with some of these people before, but we got together uh, for maybe like two weeks a couple of times uh, beforehand, and we would just like work out the blocking, we would work on the emotional life between us, um, and I'd pretty much give them a sketch of what I wanted them to do. Um, so that when the time came, we weren't fucking around on set. Um, we knew what we wanted. We knew our objectives. We knew, um, what the point of the scene was and we knew like where it was in the story. Uh, and then I guess finally I'd like to talk about, uh, directing and acting at the same time because I actually got a question about this on Twitter. Uh, it's very hard and I don't looking back. I don't think I would do it again. Um, the only reason I did it was because like, I think so many of the other roles I knew who I was going to cast. Um, but I didn't know who I could cast in this part that I played because it was like a, a very much a, a straight role. Um, not in the sense of sexual orientation, but just like it is a kind of a boring role. And, um, I don't know, Yes, and John's a very boring guy. Yeah, and I'm a very boring guy. So <laughs> I just was like, you know, I'll do it. Um, but, I mean, like what I really enjoyed as a director was being able to see um, what was happening and like tell people, the tell my actors the adjustments that I wanted to, them to make in their performances, uh, tell my DP like that something was wrong with the shot, Um and I had a script supervisor like looking over those things, but it's just different. Um, and I really w kind of regret not being able to see uh, someone else give the performance, I guess, and like make adjustments based off of that. That being said, my editor did a really good job uh, at adjusting my own performance. I wasn't happy with it. Um, and we'll get into that in the next episode, uh, which will be entirely about post-production. Um, I guess we can wrap up by saying how <laughs> we, the last day, uh, we didn't stay that night. We just packed up at like 9 PM in the middle of a storm and headed back from Maryland to, uh, New York city. Basically, the way that we structured it was um, the first day and the last day we were shooting short six to eight hour days instead of like a full day so that we could have the extra time in the day to be driving back and not keeping our crew and cast there for 16 hours or something ridiculous. Yeah, but it was very scary. <laughs> um, and I think Ryan had a similar story to this on the first feature where he was talking about how he was driving across a bridge after like a 12 hour day of production and he was like exhausted and he almost fell asleep at the wheel. Uh, it was like that for us too. So I guess that like, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to put yourself in that, that situation. Uh, yeah. You don't want to put yourself in that situation. No. Well, when we were driving back, I think, so <laughs> we had left the DIT stuff in the house before we had moved to the restaurant so I freaked out and couldn't sleep. So at four in the morning, I went to the restaurant to grab it because I knew he would need it the next day. I didn't know this. Um, so I got no sleep. And then we started the day. And afterwards, we wrapped. And I had everyone in the van. And I was driving. And we went to get gas. And I guess I just didn't shut the gas. Or, or like it was just the, completely the open. Gasket, yeah. Yeah. So they were like, they heard tapping outside of the car and they're like, well, what is that? And I was like, ah, it must be a song. And it wasn't a song. It was the flap hitting the car. It was also pouring rain out. Yeah. So. And, and you could pouring. not see the road. And they're all yelling at me at this point, like, whoa, what do I got? And I freaked out. So I like almost pulled over on the highway. They're like, don't pull over on the highway. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm the doing. The wrong side of the highway <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like sweating at this point. I'm freaking out. And finally we just, we turned off and I, and I shut it. But it was definitely, I would say, top three most stressful moments of my life. Yeah, so maybe, like, if you can have the luxury of staying an extra night, do it. Um, yeah. It'll be worth it. Or just don't do an away shoot. Or just, Well, that's something that I think I mentioned on the first episode. I was like, if you're wanting to shoot a simple short film, don't do an away shoot. Shoot your strange, experimental Chesapeake Bay short film in the middle of Brooklyn. Yeah. 
Try that. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for uh, producing my short. Um, couldn't have done it without you, as I said earlier. Um, it was a fucking amazing experience. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see it at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, me too. I can't wait. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And um, of course, you can subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. If you like what you heard, go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes. If you didn't, sure, go ahead and do it anyways. Um, I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. We will be back for the third and maybe final installment of uh, this series next Monday. I say that because I think um, I, I might want to do something like Ryan did where uh, he asked you guys uh, if you had any questions um, and then he answered them on air for the his last episode. If you do have any questions and if you think that would be a good idea, uh, just like, I guess, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye.